Well, 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 good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome uh, to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are back again on a Friday, which usually we don't broadcast on Fridays, but I've decided that in the month of uh, October, I'm going to probably be bringing guests on uh, three times a week. This is a recovery podcast. Uh, we are specific to many, not, not specific to one type of recovery, but many different types of recovery. Uh, we talk about everything recovery or lack thereof, depending on the individual or uh, who they are, or what they think, or what they are knowledgeable about. And, uh, we love to hear people's stories. And today, my special guest is Chris West. Actually, I'm in Palm Springs right now, so I'm not in my humble abode, but I, I just decided that, you know, I got to make this happen. So I, I, I love Chris. Chris is a good friend of mine. And um, we are growing our friendship more and more as we go along. Sure. Uh, welcome, welcome to the corner, Chris. Thank you very much, Pez. Grateful to be here. Thank you. Grateful to have you. Uh, so, Chris, usually, you know, what we do is we delve into your past. Uh, we go and talk about uh, where you were born, where you were raised. Uh, we get into the the usage or the drinking, whatever that may look like, and then after that, we we go um, into the recovery portion of your life. So. Uh, where are you from, Chris? Where, sure. where were you born? Uh, I've always been in Ca uh, Southern California, born in Southern California, but I was born in Compton, California, 1963. Had okay. two parents, one of each, <laughs> uh, okay. and moved moved to uh, Orange County, 1970. Uh, okay. Went to school here and a variety of stuff like that, and then moved back to LA, 1980s to go to school, trade school, learn a trade, uh, mm -hmm. and begin my journey into, into drugs and alcohol, we'll get into that. And okay, then so you're, you're 58 yeah. years old right now. And, and you said you were, yeah. you said you were born in Compton, California, Compton, California, 1963. How, how old were you when you left Compton and went to Orange County? Pretty young, seven, eight, seven, eight, eight nine years okay. old. Yeah. Yeah. So question, question for you real quick. And I'm very curious because I've been to Compton. I go to yeah. Compton quite often. Um, when you were in Compton, California at the time, were you one of the only white people there, or was there was there a, a diverse like a diverse group of of nationalities and, and that's races? a good question. We were very isolated. We lived on a street mm -hmm. with two houses. The houses next to me, I believe, they were Hispanic. Um, mm -hmm. So I literally didn't know any of our other neighbors. Maybe the backstore neighbors. We went to mm -hmm. a, a parochial school, St. Paul's. Uh, I think it was a mix, probably mostly white kids. I think mm -hmm. the area was, was becoming predominantly black or was already predominantly black. I'm not really sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do recall the, the riots in 69 or something like that um, mm -hmm. uh, being very traumatic. Or, uh, I'm a kid, you know, I'm just doing whatever. But yeah, so our- The watch, the watch riots, right? You're talking about those? Rides. Yes, yeah. correct. So mm -hmm. that's when we moved out to, the, to Orange County. Okay. And then y'all moved to Orange County. Where'd you move? Midway City. Uh, yeah, Midway City. It's right in between Huntington Beach and Westminster and 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 so on. And when we moved here, it was, it was 70, 71. So a lot of things were new then. A lot of open fields, no traffic, mm -hmm. one area code. Right. Uh, right. I remember going to Mile Square Park, a little nine-year-old, whatever, being very disappointed because the trees were too small to climb. Mm. So, so that Orange County was just growing at the time. Yes. There was yeah. a lot of agriculture. There was a lot of oranges because that's why they named it Orange County. Yeah. A lot of farmland, right? So, right. okay. 71, you moved to, it was about 71, you say you moved yeah, to Orange County? Yeah, about 71. County? Moved to Midway it's, City, it, it, Orange County. In, 70, in 71, Pej was born. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So then you, you all lived in Orange County for how long? Uh, Ever since. You said, well, you, said, you, you said you had moved back to L.A. Uh, I did. Point. Right after high school, junior uh, junior college, I moved back to L.A. to go to trade school. Um, okay, trade school. And what was the, what kind of trade school was it? Uh, there's a lot, L, L.A. Trade Tech, and I've been going to a, prior, a variety of schools up to that point. But air conditioning and refrigeration, uh, a type <laughs> of trade, electrical and stuff like that. I've been doing that in the summers. Um, I, I was just talking to a teacher friend of mine. What kept me out of trouble in high school uh, was my dad engaging me in stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. First, it was boxing and stuff, but then it really got into a trade. And um, it, it was the only place I could be outside of the household where people mm -hmm. would say, good job. Oh, here's how you do it. Oh, you made a mistake. Oh, no problem. Here's how you do it. Because uh, otherwise, my father, very loving, 
very caring, but he was a yeller and he was just like, okay, as soon as I did something good, okay, let's move on. Uh, did you have any siblings? I did. One sister, uh, two years older. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, two years older. She's always been the rescuer and she's always right. been the tattletale as growing up. And she was very clever at manipulating or telling people what they wanted to hear. I didn't learn how to do that, at least with my parents. So, and, okay, so so at, at what age were you experimenting with drugs or uh, alcohol? I dabbled in the teens. And when I say dabbled, I, I might have, not much. First sip of beer, I didn't like it. First, uh, that's th age 13. My mother was an alcoholic. First sip of beer. I got it. No one's home. It, it's it's filled. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, first drunk was age 16. And it was probably just four beers. Um, right. I didn't like it. I, I got sick. I tried to kick a stop sign. So I didn't repeat it. Um, do you, first, do you, would you say when you were younger, though, were you a rebel? Were you were you studious? Were you, were you uh, academic? Did, yeah, you, did you get into trouble? I was introvert, shy, alone, broken, uh, you know, always not fitting in, not being good enough. Whatever I could perform or, or get done, I, that was my value. Whatever I could get from someone's approval, that was my value. Didn't get in a lot of trouble. You said your dad was a yeller. Was he just a yeller or was there any violence in the house? I mean, sometimes verbal yeah. violence is just as bad. Right, right, right. Uh, there was conflict between uh, my parents, so that oh, was upsetting. Two of them. No real okay. violence. Yeah, no. I mean, physical violence. I mean, I got spankings mm -hmm. and stuff like that, and I I had them coming. I totally earned them, and it helped change my 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 pathway. Uh, mm -hmm. But again, yeah, a yeller, you know. Yeah, and then uh, when you were uh, obviously you said you didn't like beer the first time you tried it, but when did what happened that you? Well, how old were you when, when you started to really actually get into using or what were you using? Mid twenties, mid twenties. So kind of a late bloomer. Late bloomer. And I'll, I'll back up to age 19. I tried cocaine for the first time. Mm -hmm. I was going to junior college, Cyprus, uh, air conditioning refrigeration. We're doing these illustrated drawings. I stayed up all night, illustrated drawing, copying from a book. And, I, and I'm like, my God, how did I stay up all night? This is freaking fantastic. Except I feel mm -hmm. terrible. But then I went to school, turned in my work, and the teacher said, this is the work I want. This is the detail I want. So I thought, wow. So you, so you, because you did this cocaine, like you're like the movie Limitless, like you were just like, boom, like I could like bust out all, like exactly, exactly. the content yeah. that's needed. Now, yeah. I have a question for you. You said you were held when you did that? 19, coke? 19. And how did you, how did you obtain the cocaine? Well, I haven't thought about that for a while. It's probably at my, my neighbor's house where they'd be, have, they'd be having parties there fairly regular. And party is just four people. And I think it was must have been the cocaine there. Yeah, I got it from that so, guy's so you, house. And this was in Midway City? Midway City, yeah. yeah. Midway City. So, so kind of like in, in the neighborhood. people. In the neighborhood, yeah. And it's interesting. I don't remember the specific person. I just remember what I did afterwards. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, I had the wherewithal to look at it and go, oh my God, this stuff's dangerous. I like it so much. The switch didn't get turned on, or maybe it did, but I didn't act on it. So I, I left it alone because I thought this illustrated drawing of my trade, uh, mm -hmm. this is cool, but the cocaine didn't do this. I did this, but the cocaine mm -hmm. kept me up all night. So the switch didn't get turned on. Uh, okay. I'm also a musician. Uh, been playing music ever since I was a kid. So my first time I tried crystal meth, early 20s. Early twenties. How did we, you catch wind of, of, of meth? Like, how did it come into you? And what back then it was crank, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. The, the, the good stuff was crystal, but there was crank. You're absolutely right. It's pasty. Uh, okay. The, the, they had crystal back then too. Uh, whatever you okay. called it, the speed. Uh, the speed. Again, and how did you obtain it? Yeah, I didn't obtain it. Uh, someone else. I gave it to me. We're in a garage. We're playing music. Uh, Drinking, not my thing, but everyone's drinking. Smoking pot, mm -hmm. mm, not my thing. Kind of puts me out in right field. Uh, but I'm still maladjusted. I'm still, I'm sure, you know, very socially inept. And mm -hmm. um, so, but if I play music, I know I'm fun. Having done fun doing that anyway. First time we did crystal meth, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we we played for like two or three days, <laughs> and every 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 song was a winner. It's like wow, how, how it could sound, it be it so sounded, good? 
sounded so good to all of you for sure. Yeah. Now, I recorded uh, it. I recorded before, it. Yeah. Before you were going to do that, Crystal Meth, were you scared? Was there any kind of fear? Like, was there an onset? Like, oh my God, what am I getting into? No. Or were you just a little rebel that was just like, I don't care, I'd stick it up my nose? You snorted it, right? Yeah, snorted it. Um, yeah. I was very curious. The, the guy was doing, he guy had been doing it all the time, you know, the little snorts yeah. and that. I've been ignoring it. And that was asked, do you want to try some? And I thought, okay. So I wasn't being a rebel. I, I was curious. Curious. Mm -hmm. But as just I said, I, we recorded it. And <laughs> it was no recognizable that we were even playing the same song. So again, my mind thought, well, how wonderful is this stuff? But it's not real. But I thought mm -hmm. it was real. Um, mm -hmm. Long story short, at that point, I, I was working for, for one the public utility, integrated mm -hmm. into life outside of the household, still afraid. Now, again, at work, hey, good job. Oh, here's a bonus, this and that. I discovered putting crystal meth into my coffee. Uh, I wasn't looking for the high, wasn't looking for the buzz. It was going to come. But anyway, I thought this was really very, very adult use where I had to go to get it. And I wasn't real happy with that. Uh, right. But so I'd start working really long hours at work. Gotcha. Uh, and then what? it just became a way of life. You were doing crystal meth regularly. Uh, I would do it five days a week, you know, to work long hours and maybe overtime. It was just it's just like a really strong cup of coffee. Like Monday through Friday to get yeah shit Monday done. through Friday and it, we had back then there's a lot of overtime at this public utility uh, and I just mm -hmm. loved it again I'm a 19 20 years old and integrating mm -hmm. away from this dysfunction belonging mm -hmm. belonging somewhere and I put in long hours <laughs> uh, so what about like you, you tell me that you would only do it five days a week what about the weekends was that like your crash time I, I mean I, yeah only if I was only you only use it when you were working, so you were yeah. somewhat, somewhat. It seemed that you were managing. So, what would you do on the weekends? Because if you're doing that, if you're doing speed for five days in a week, there's got to be a crash period. I mean, there's got to be a time where you're just like, because you've been I up could, for so long. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I would still go to sleep. You'd sleep like, every night. You were doing meth. Yeah, but I would. It was a small amount fuck? of my coffee. <laughs> oh, it's just that little amount. It was like yeah. limited. You were, yeah. In a sense, in a sense, you were kind of microdosing methamphetamines. <laughs> microdosing, that's right. It's a term I've recently become familiar with. And again, I wasn't looking for the buzz. I was just looking for the good cup of coffee. Same thing I do now that I've gotten away from we were talking about. I can get five mm -hmm. shots of, uh, of espresso, and mm -hmm. I like the feeling, and I crash. I don't do that anymore. I don't need that. So you didn't really see anything wrong with what you were doing. It was actually a tool for getting through the week. and being Yes, yeah, highly productive like, like really good with. coffee. Like okay. really good coffee. Um, Very well. Now, uh, then what happened? What did you start? Like, how, how did life become? Did you experience any kind of depressive thoughts or depression uh, when you were coming down, perhaps? I mean, you got to come down. You were sleeping lately. Yeah, good question. Uh, my life was already in a loneliness, only already in a brokenness. And I don't mm -hmm. know that depression was the right word, but that, that probably applies. But again, finding some new life and direction. And I used to hear the other people say, you know, when we we're doing overtime, I'd always say, yes, yes. They said, we realize you have a life outside of work. And I'm like, no, I don't. No, I mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. So at some point, I smoked crack for the first time. Again, at a musician's house. And it was the second hit that took me. Uh, that's, that's, when, that's when it escalated. Or, or, or there was something I was chasing. It wasn't just to keep me up. It was it was that rush. It was that high. The first this, it was actually a second hit of crack to where I'm like, mm -hmm. I want more. This this is a great feeling. And at some point I started smoking the meth too. Same thing. I was no longer using it to stay up. Not that I was using it to stay up, but I was no longer using it as just to stimulate the work. I was using it as a high to get the rush. Uh, mm -hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't every day at first. Then it turned into every day. Uh, or it turned into five days a week. And I so, recall, yeah. Do you remember how old you were during this time? Mid-20s. Mid-20s, late-20s. So there wasn't a lot of people that were smoking crystal meth, per se, during that time. There, there was a, a, over a period, I mean, people could do it, like I did it back then. But Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about old school. This was like old school speed. This is the biker dope, that jet fuel shit, right? That if you were, uh, you, you was usually being snorted or being 
people would intravenously shoot it too. But but you you say that you started to smoke it. What, what yeah? Why the transition? Like why why did you start smoking it? What what were you smoking it out of? Off a tin foil? Uh, not a glass pipe, obviously. Right, right. I I guess my crack phase started before my smoking the meth phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that so the crack was through the shooter. Uh, and so the crystal meth was a substitute for the crack when you couldn't get it. The crystal meth, in my view, because at some point I moved away from the crack, and the crystal meth, mm-hmm. in my view, was responsible. What That was mm-hmm. healthy use of, of a drug. Uh, right. And th- in the late 90s, uh, yeah, there's definitely crystal available. So I, I know about the, the paste and the biker dope and this and that. But in the mm-hmm. mid-90s where I was at, uh, L.A., MacArthur Park, uh, other places, not important, but uh, there was crystal. There was crystal available where it was really crystal. <laughs> yeah, and so I was smoking it. So I re- when I first realized there was a problem, we're the last to know, right? We never ignore it. Mm-hmm. I think it's in how the late it, how, yeah. how was it the problem? What, what was the problem? Uh, I recall being at work. The timeline's a little fuzzy. must have been before 90s, late, late 2020s in my age. Anyway, the timeline is fuzzy, but mm-hmm. I recall this experience. I'm working a night shift and I get, and it's downtown LA, 5th and 8th uh, and Flower, we're working right. for the high rise. And my whole job is just to keep the equipment running, shut it down, and uh, it's a graveyard. I'm sorry, a swing shift. I'll get done at midnight. So I come into work like I normally do, and there's this guy across the street waving at me or waving at somebody. And I'm thinking, well, I haven't bought dope from him. He doesn't know me. I'm just going to ignore it. And then every chance I, I got, every time I got out to the front of the building on the roof, this guy's waving at me. I mean, he's mm-hmm. turning, waving at me. Now it's starting to piss me off. I'm like, dang, I got to handle this. This guy's, this guy shouldn't be doing that. So I waited two hours for most people to get home and I get out to the front of my building. He's across the street waving at me. So I want to obey the law. I don't jaywalk. I go corner to corner and I start walking up to him. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but he's got to stop doing what he's doing. And as soon as mm-hmm. I get about 10 feet from him, there is no one waving at me. It's a mailbox. It's a mailbox. Now, at that point, <laughs> at that point, I'd only been using five days a week. So I, I would I, I understand the crash and all that. So I'm sleep deprivated. I'm not right. But I don't I don't think that I'm not right. But how can I deny that? So at that point, I thought there's something very wrong with my thinking. So it, it didn't been it didn't go to 82. Uh, been to four treatment centers. We'll zoom up f- forward to 2005. Mm-hmm. It got worse from there. We're, we're, it was not only a daily thing, but an hourly thing. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the terrible thing of staying awake and this and that. 2005, before my first treatment center, I'm on a ladder. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's slightly raining. I've got a mm-hmm. flashlight taped to my head, an umbrella in the backside of my pants, and I'm painting. Tw- my tweaker shit. Tweaker That's tweaker shit. That's tweaker shit right there. Yep, and to, yep. to me, it was therapeutic. My father comes out to his house. He did not ask me to paint his house, by the way. And he just looks up and says, what are you doing? And I look down and go, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Do you know what time it is? I do not. It's three o'clock. And I go, oh, that's great. I don't have to work till 530. <laughs> um, again, in my mind, and I, if I see someone like that, I know well, they've got to, that's me. At some point, they're going to receive some miracle to get into some recovery and something's mm-hmm. going to change their life. But until they get to that point, uh, there's no talking to them. So again, then at that day, uh, that was my first, I showed up to work. And I was a big a guy that would say, it's my responsibility to get to work. Once I get there, I'm their problem. Uh, now at this point, I'm at a different location with a different boss. I used to have a lot more at- at- uh, autonomy and, and I could get away with a lot more stuff. I wasn't on the radar. So I became put on the radar. Long mm-hmm. before that thing happened, but my my boss just said, "Just sit, just relax. We don't want you going anywhere for a little while. Just relax here. You know what? Write down three things you'd like to get done in the next couple of days, or something like that." Now, again, my behavior had been a concern for a lot of people up to that point. It wasn't officially on the radar, and I wrote on the paper, "Please let me wake up w- without a day of remorse and regret." Terribly depressed. Oh my God! I, I when I wasn't getting high and I was going home to get high. I'm just in mm-hmm. tears at just how much my life sucks. So please let me have a day without remorse and regret. Please let me not wake up. <laughs> uh, please let me start a drum circle. So I leave that there. And, the, and then uh, she didn't read it right away. I call in sick the next day. 
I was, I was, I was detoxing, whatever you want to call it. To me, it was legitimately sick. They mm-hmm. sent the uh, fire department for a welfare check, and uh, I'm actually not getting loaded, but I'm detoxing. You know, the the, the delusion. I'm a responsible person. I'm actually sick, calling in sick. I hear my mm-hmm. dad talking to some group of people out there. Anyway, long story short, it's the fire department. They want to talk to me. They want to check on my welfare, and I talk to them briefly. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm fine. And said, well, you need to come with us. And no, no, I don't need to come with you. I'm fine. Believe me, trust me. And they said, cool, cool. You don't have to come with us, but the cops will come next and you will have to go with them. And I go, oh, shoot. <laughs> okay, I'll go with you. It's um, real talk. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they drew blood. Oh, that was my worst nightmare. Don't draw blood for me. You're violating my Fifth Amendment. All this stuff that, you know, I'm a union guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a good, not a good citizen to the world. Uh, so the, 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 the jig was up. I remember they kept Verdugo Hills hospital. They kept me 12 hours, some observation. My sister came, took responsibility for me, kind of. And I remember coming into work the next day or something, uh, to see my boss and to see corporate security. And I'm like, am I in trouble? My, my boss was a, a wonderful woman, and but she learned how not to be codependent enabling. said, no, you're not in trouble, but we need to talk to you. And corporate security, their number one concern, well, what is this drum circle? They were concerned it was some sort of explosives or something like that. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh, this, it's, it's drums. And then my brother said two things. I go, yeah, I, I, I don't like living in so many words. And I'm laughing about it now at the time. It, there's nothing funny about it. Just just mm-hmm. the worst. Uh First treatment center and, you know, it, it, college hospital. Anyway, the first treatment center, 2005. So that whole journey from 2005 to 2010 took more convincing. So that tweaking with the flashlight and this and that, it got worse from there to where I remember picking up one time, y'all happy and excited. It's like it's the best thing in the world and coming home and just spending 15 minutes sobbing, so alone, so broken and how can my life, how has my life come to this? Uh, I, I relate. Yeah. How Absolutely. Has my life come? I, I want to ask you this, and I want to get into what you were just talking about. That's, sure. that's very important, that part. Yeah. Were you mostly a stimulant guy or like throughout your life, did you smoke weed? Did you like, I mean, you said you didn't like alcohol in the beginning, but along your journey, because you, you told me that you started, you, you tried cocaine when you were 19 and then mm-hmm. you got, it sounds more like you got into the, the, a lot of tweaking and met, like methamphetamines and things like that. But throughout all of this, was there ever like marijuana usage or alcohol? Was that ever in the mix? Yeah, but to not, to not any great degree. It was never something that, that I thought, well, this is cool. Now I like the buzz from marijuana. I like nice. the buzz, uh, nice. but some of the, newer stuff they had it was beyond buzz it just put me in right field which right. for my perception wasn't something i liked although the speed make you crazy um uh, mm-hmm. same thing with the alcohol i like the buzz i don't like mm-hmm. the drunk so right. yeah i've never never really experimented now, i did have seroquel uh, uh, given to me at some point from a doctor because i right. didn't tell him about the meth problem i was having trouble sleeping oh so, i enjoyed the seroquel the, the seroquel <laughs> was able to put me to sleep even when you were tweaking and all that. Say say again? Even when you were tweaking. No, this was kind of in between. In between. Now, yeah. were, you, were, you, were you ever shooting meth or was it just smoking? No, no. Okay. never shot and then it. You got, you got sober in 2010, correct? Yeah, the, yes, the lasting sobriety is 2010. Let me, if I, maybe I didn't hear it, but like, did your transition with speed change? Because I know that we're old school, like what we used to use started to change. Like, uh, there became from, I remember it was like crank or crystal meth, which yeah. is you know, the cleaner version of it, it seemed. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the transition into glass and then ice. And, and ice was the most highest potent form. It I was actually hard, hard, harder to find in California. It was more of a drug that was being transported out to. Hawaii, and um, I have a lot of personal experience with that. But I, I know that uh, uh, ice was like a thousand times as strong as glass, and glass was uh, more of a smokable thing. People didn't really—I mean, there were some people that snorted it or shot it, definitely. But like, it became—they would clean it with acetone and 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 be able—you could like smoke it, and it would give you 
stay high and then over a period of time you, you could sleep on it and things. Were you doing glass? No, uh, I was doing glass. Never got to the ice, but yeah, I was definitely doing glass. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then uh, when you got to that point of, it seemed like the point of no return where you were highly emotional about all that, uh, you, was this in college hospital? Was this in your own personal space? Where was this? This was in my own personal space. Uh, okay. Long before there, anyone else was asking me to change my behavior. And you my were dad, just, uh, you were feeling a lot of emotions because you just felt like shit from, from what, what you've done to your life. Cause you said, how has it come to this? Right? Yes. Right. Right. So this was uh, like a real, a realization that you had within yourself. It's like, you knew better, but you're, you're so caught up that you just hate your life and you hate yourself. Right. Is that what happened? Right. Okay. Right. Now a question for you, if you don't mind me asking, I, I don't Please. know. I should open ask book. you if you're an open, open book. Um, do you have any traumas or anything that you think you were using overall throughout your life? Not really, but a trauma is a relative term, but, uh, no, I've been a pretty happy childhood. My dad was a yeller. I didn't feel socially adapted. My parents got a divorce and they got argued, you know, they argued. And I remember mm -hmm. my father sent me down, which he never did, took me to an arcade, which he never did mm -hmm. and told me we're getting a divorce. It's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. I love you. I think I've heard him say that three times in, his, in my life. I'm really grateful that he has. But I didn't believe him. I, it had to be my fault. So that was a bit of the trauma. I just didn't. That's, tra that's that. traumatic to some people. I, I, I couldn't stand. I, I didn't want my parents to get divorced. You know, yeah. so, so I just didn't. There was a lot of dysfunction within the household, but I didn't want to be the child of divorced parents. And it happened when I was actually, you know, 17, almost 18 years old. So I wasn't a, much of a child anymore. But regardless of the fact I didn't want, you know, I've seen all my, my friends in school that had, that, that were children of divorced parents or only yeah. lived with one parent. And I, I always wondered like, how would that be if I came home and dad wasn't there or mom wasn't there? Like I need guidance from both the mother and the father. At least that's what I thought. And so when they split up that, that really, really fucked with me. So, um, okay. So we'll, we'll move on now. So, well, I got a quick little thing on that one. So at that sure. point, I didn't like it. I was unhappy. I didn't know how to communicate with with people and hey i'm unhappy with this this sucks my uh, desperate attempt to communicate was to be quiet and i hope someone would ask and somehow that manip uh, transformed into i'm just quiet i don't know why so but uh, go ahead what, what were you so like it, so you became an introvert by choice because you just didn't yeah to. i forgot even why i was mad at the world and, and then okay. why they didn't come talk to me and i just i'm going to be quiet and have so there's like Okay, so there, yeah. but deep down inside, there was probably anger boiling within. Yeah, yeah, that... yeah, yeah, yeah. Without knowing it, I felt hurt. Okay, abandoned. and that's probably like one of the reasons that through the abandonment issues and all of that stuff, where it became an excuse to use and just numb out in excess, right? Yes, an underlining cause, unresolved issue, never faced, never issue. dealt with. Yeah. So, Chris, so you you say you went to treatment? Like a lot of people think when they hear treatment. It's like a uh, 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 bougie center where they uh, have acupuncture and all kinds of uh, amenities and things like that for people. To, so you said college hospital. College hospital is not. It's it's a hospital. It, it is treatment. They do provide treatment. There are yeah. there, is there was there individual therapy. This was outpatient, 2005, whenever it was, uh, and they only spent a couple hours each week on drugs. They would sit us all down. And I'm like going. Oh. Uh, so they didn't okay. really deal with the drug or an alcohol issue because I, I wouldn't really deal with it. When you say four treatment centers, how long were your treatment stays and why weren't you staying sober? Yeah. Well, on the very first treatment center, you know, one of my prayers was, God, please let me wake up well, with remorse and regret. Mm -hmm. I woke up with the obsession to use. I was in L.A., but I moved to Orange County with my sister. Now I'm going to outpatient college hospital. Mm -hmm. I woke up. It, believe me. I, up to that point, I got to use every day. It's out of control every day. Not even out of control. I just love it. Um, well, I don't love it anymore. But but anyway, I woke you up. Loved you, you loved it. You loved it at the time. Yeah, yeah. it had me. It was my master. It was my it master. Was master. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that first day I woke up at my sister's, going to go to a college house. I, the, the remorse and regret had been removed. Uh, the desire to get loaded had been removed, waiting to be reignited. And so... For a while there, I didn't know anyone in Orange County that had drugs, except maybe one person. So mm -hmm. I got away from that, went to that treatment center. They're dealing with a lot of interesting people. 
uh, mm-hmm. schizoaffective, bipolar, uh, a whole, whole variety of personality very, disorders. Very, very many different types. Yeah. So I ingratiated that. Once I uh, graduated, whatever that is, I remember talking to the doctor too, going, when do we know we're good? When, 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 when people rock out? And he was pretty honest. He says, well, there's limitations of what insurance covers or does not cover. When we feel mm-hmm. you've reached a better state of whatever, uh, you, you're, you're good or, you know. But they encouraged me to get involved in support groups. Okay. That was like my first principle. solo attempt to a support group, 12-step group. It was mm-hmm. called Comfort Zone. It was by, it was a dual diagnosis, depression and uh, alcohol and drugs, I think. Anyway, I wouldn't cop into the alcohol and drugs yet. It was pretty obvious. But did I was, you have, Were you dual diagnosis? Like, were you diagnosed with mental health? I was misdiagnosed because I didn't tell him about the crystal meth. So what's well, but I did come clean with that. And so I've never been diagnosed uh, with uh, bipolar. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But That's I remember going to that, that, that 12 step meeting, I mm-hmm. circled the building five times. I didn't want to go in there. I felt so uncomfortable and, right. and everything. And then when I finally got in, it was all in my mind, right. you know? Right. So it, it's it's interesting because I was a, a major tweaker myself. I, I, I had a love-hate relationship with crystal meth and with ice and glass and all of it for a long right. time. Um, it, it's, it's interesting how we hide behind the secret. There's an elephant in the room. There's definitely something wrong. It's our addiction. And uh, if they were to have diagnosed me during that time because of all the ups and downs and, and, and many different episodes that were created through me and my usage of crystal meth, uh, they would have said I was um, depressive disorder. They would have said anxiety ridden. They would have said bipolar disorder because, you know, I mean, I was like, crystal meth puts you on edge. You stay up for hours and hours and days on end. And uh, you have this criminal mind or you have, uh, you, be, you become demonic. You become yeah. demonic. The fucking devil takes over your soul. And I, that's just how it felt for me. Like mm-hmm. I saw, I looked into like some of my so-called friends' eyes and I would, people that I grew up with that I really loved, like, that we had all gotten into this, like the depths of like straight meth addiction. And I would look yeah. in their eyes and almost see like the, 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 the demons within them had overtaken wow. them and they were just whole different people. So um, I, I myself was never diagnosed either when I first got sober. However, I do remember uh, uh, and still see to this day, here's what happened, what's happening more and more. I, I remember uh, people I was using meth with that would go into full-blown psychosis and, and 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 that's from i mean i think everybody's chemical like the structure of our chemical makeup within ourselves mm-hmm. can, can can vary you know some like i was doing the same amount of drugs as these guys and they're they've got stethoscope one of them's got a stethoscope and he's listening to the wall, walls saying that he hears the voices and asked me to listen to i'm like what i'm like, okay and give it to me i put it on I'm like i don't hear shit He's like, oh, they're talking about you right now. I'm like, I thought you needed a stethoscope to listen to him. He's like, that's wonderful. Well, you know, actually, I, I have superhuman hearing and I don't need to stethoscope, but it intensifies it. And they're talking about you right now. I'm like, really? What are they saying? Like, uh, do you know? So, so were you I, buying into it or did you know it was a little crazy? I actually, you know what? I told them, I, I one of them, I told them, listen, this is insane. Like, why would people be in your wallet? What are we that important? Like you have to like use common sense. That we're not that important. The, the FBI and the CIA. What, I mean, are we committing federal crimes for them to want to bug the car and bug the ceiling and put the camera in the port? It's logical. It's not true. It's not true. Like yeah. so. So I think that I still carried a lot of logic during during the time of, of like using. It. Yeah. But if I if I had stayed up long enough, Chris, you know, I mean, there was times when I stayed for days and days where I started thinking, you know. I just saw that helicopter go over overboard like five different times. It keeps circling. Are they after me? And sure, you know, I mean, down the line, when I did get raided by the methamphetamine task force, I remember just looking at it and thinking, <laughs> well, I, I never, you know, I guess yeah, I've been waiting started. for this day. Like, yes. Here we are. So, so um, your fourth treatment stay is the time that you got sober and stayed sober completely? Yes. Okay. And was it college hospital all four times or were you going to other treatment centers? Uh, college, uh, other treatment centers. I finally ended up at Cornerstone. It was okay. the college hospital first one, Twin Town twice. Mm-hmm. And uh, the corner, Cornerstone was the 24-7. We're going to keep you. 
Corn, Cornerstone is in, in, in Tustin, California, in Orange County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, how long did you stay there for? 93 days. And during your 93 days, did what, what happened? Was was there kind of some kind of revelation? Like what happened that that uh, did you stayed sober, like completely sober when you came out of it, right? Yes. Did, did some did a panel come in? What was it that made Chris West actually decide this is it? Several things happened, and probably three major ones. The first mm -hmm. one was in detox. Uh, there was this realization that this is as good as my life is going to get. This is this is the best it's going to get. And in fact, it's going to get worse from now because I won't have insurance and I can only pray to get back to where I'm at. Detoxing out of garage as a newcomer. So I thought, You're 40, 47 years old at the time? Yeah, about 47. And I'm thinking, I, 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 I'm powerless. What's going to happen here? Uh, then I got this message or, or knowledge or communication from a higher power of God. I just call it God. And it was kind of not auditory, but it was like, I've been asking you to do something for a long time. If you don't want to do it, I'm going to get someone else. I'm like, and I'll be did talking. This, did God saying this to you? Or you're yeah, saying yeah, this I, I felt it was God communicating to me. Yeah. When did this message come about? Were you on your knees in prayer? Were you sitting at a dinner table? Were you? Did you hear it like when you were outdoors and like a, like a breeze in the wind? What, yeah. When did this? I was I was sitting in a room uh, in a garage. The meeting was about to start. It might have been a panel. I don't recall. But I remember sitting there and I asked the question internally going, what is it you want me to do? Right. And, he, and, he, and he, it, the source, the power, whatever you want to call it, uh, said, I want you to start caring about someone else other than yourself. Go pray for that person. There was someone over there. And, uh, and, and, and I go, can I do it from here? You know, uh, and then I went to that person and asked for permission to pray. I still know this person. She's sober in San Francisco. And that prayer was as much for her as it was for me, that God's not forgotten you, that he understands that you're hurt, that you're scared, and that, that you're not alone. There is, there is a, a reason for this, and we're going to get through it, and you're going to help the next person. I get excited mm -hmm. about talking about it now. So that with two more experiences. Uh, this is a very powerful experience. So, you oh, know, like oh, sometimes, is. sometimes is. we hear we hear yeah. messages through through other people. We hear God's uh, message through other people, but you're straight up having a conversation with God. Why did you trust it, Chris? Why did you trust whatever that thing that did you think you were insane, or did you did you like believe that something's looking out for your best interest? I had always believed in, in that power. I just didn't have a relationship with him. I wanted him to bring me home because I'm done with this life. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I didn't doubt it. I trusted it. And just to care about the next person. Uh, and then next, there was a, a person involved with this, with this moment of clarity, this spiritual experience. Number two, mm -hmm. I'm in a meeting, uh, visiting speakers meeting, AA meeting. I'm still, I'm still smoking and joking. I don't got a problem, uh, mm -hmm. but um, something's changing. And we're making noise in the back room, speaker meeting. I've made amends to the speaker meeting recently, a couple of years ago, and they said, we, don't, we weren't, even, weren't even there when that happened. Anyway, this old timer comes up. All the guys I'm joking with, they left. They're out there smoking, laughing at me, and I'm caught. This old timer, said, and I'll just tell you exactly what he said. If you don't want to take this serious, he points to the front where people are talking, sharing mm -hmm. the hope, sharing something that's going to save my life. And he points out to my friend, says, go out there and fucking die. Uh, I can't tell someone that. But I needed to hear that. And it wasn't that he was kicking me out of AA. He was telling me I had some choices. And I knew nothing about what was going on up there. So the next day, well, next week, whatever, I sat up front. And here comes the same old timer. And he's going to read chapter five. He's got a lamp. And I'm pretty sure he's got 30 days sobriety. He really needs this program. Uh, and he recites chapter five. And it's not that he had it memorized that was the deal here. It's that those words were talking to me and to God. Me, God, those words. And to this day, when I hear someone read the steps or the traditions, I'm listening to them intently. But anyway, at this moment, they were just like, it's all here. It's all here in these words and more. It's just up between you. Rarely have we seen a person fail and all those things. And all the new readings, if I listen to it, it's me and God. And then finally, the third realization, my first meet, uh, first time in a 12-step meeting where I heard my story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Just a three-minute share, 
and he explained what it was like first time to smoke crack. That was exactly me. Uh, what what would happen? We'd get these opportunities, the three treatment centers, to get help. People going, we'll help you if you want help. You don't want help, we can't help you. And then mm-hmm. finally, the fourth part, what it's like now. And he talked about his life being rich. And, and I'm in my first 30 days of sobriety. And his life being rich and full because he has a sponsor and works his steps. So at that meeting, I asked a man to be my sponsor. Someone I saw five years earlier, you know, because I was supposed to go to meetings for work. He'd give me his card. Like, I'm not calling you. Life is good. I don't need that. This same man there, I asked him to be my sponsor. And he was my Eskimo for my first two years of sobriety. So those hmm. things got me on a course. Um, did you mention when you were talking before in your using times, were you doing uh, crack too? Because I, I know that yeah. you're a member of a, okay. Yeah. And crack yeah. life is a whole different type of life. I mean, there's a big difference between meth use and crack use. I, yes, there is. You yeah. Know, uh, and and the, the crack was a shorter high. It was more desperate. It, it consumed my more time. So again, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was being responsible and like switching from Coke to diet, you know, to green tea. Uh, and so the crystal meth, I, I recall even smoking crystal meth the, one, the first couple of times the wrong way. I was smoking it in a shooter. It was like my reserves and my crack ran out. The crystal mm-hmm. meth was easier to get and it lasted longer. And it seemed like I was in more control. All an illusion. That, you know, that if I hold on to any sobering fact, anything I was getting from drugs and alcohol, counterfeit. What we're doing right now, this is real. This is me. This is, this is you. This is real. Yeah. I love this. I don't mm-hmm. need a pill or a, uh, you know, a, a hit to do this, to enjoy this. Awesome. So, okay. So Chris, this is, this is where this gets special for me in this, in this podcast. And I want to tell you why. Please. You basically, you, you told my story today. Yeah. You fucking told my story today. There's, there's times when we, when people that come into recovery, they sit, they can sit in rooms for countless meetings and, and hear so many people share in so many different ways and they might get little bits and pieces of things and okay i might relate to that a little yeah you know what that sounds kind of familiar you know i don't have nothing to do with that guy oh i didn't drink like that or i wasn't an alcoholic or i wasn't a drug addict or i was just an alcoholic so many dif- differences rather than similarities but today the way that you talked you spoke you talked about somebody who seemed like they said some stuff that captured your heart and and then you were brought into the path of real recovery. And that when I say real recovery, I mean the type of recovery I I subscribe to. And I, I know you and I know that the, the circles that we run in and the type of uh, recovery that we mm-hmm. have pretty much, it's part of our life. Like it's, yes. it's our everything. It's what we do. Um, we, we come from the same cloth. Like we, we truly see things the same way. And it's not because we, we use the same way. We may have used some of the same stuff, um, you know, the same way, but it's, it's where we came and what we did and who demonstrated it for us what it was to be men and women of recovery and then yes. us actually following suit and doing that. So yeah. uh, this is a Love great it. importance. So Chris, what I, what I enjoy about you is how many years are you sober right now? 11? 11 years, a little over 11. 11 years. Okay. What I see when I see you is, is, uh, you're a man of service. You step up, you, you, uh, you take commitments, you provide a safe space. When people come into the, uh, into a room of recovery and they might be a newcomer, you make them feel welcome. That's important. Majorly important because someone did it for you and someone did it for me. And and so it's not just about setting up the chairs or making the coffee. It's about, uh, leading a person towards, a sponsor perhaps towards pamphlets, towards a message of hope, a message of depth and weight, a message of, of recovery that you know, what, what you do uh, is uh, when I grow up, I want to be like you. I'm telling you, I, I see, I see a man who, uh, who, who's really embraced this way of life. And, you know, there's a lot of people that we see that come into recovery that, or, or the their recovery remains on shaking ground. Some people will do the footwork in the very, very beginning and be driven and do it because they they are being told this is what we do to stay sober. So uh, over a period of time, like they do it and they do it, but they become like mechanical, like robots, and and uh, and they just do it because they think it's what you have to do. The 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 what I feel might be the problem with that sometimes is the fact that 
you're doing this to please perhaps a sponsor or a, a spiritual advisor to try to look good for them because who knows, you might have daddy issues or, or you're, you know, might have mommy issues. And so this is like a new authority in your life that you think is trying to tell you what to do. And if you don't live up to their expectations, again, you're not going to amount to anything in there. At least this is your perception. Oh, yes. But you haven't yet uh, given yourself to something greater than yourself. You're st we still live in that third dimensional style of living to where we, we, uh, we it's the worldly things that we think we have to uh, obtain and, and we to in order to, to satisfy others, we think that a level of success only comes from, uh, you know, how many days we've been sober or how many sponsees we have and all that. But that's not yeah. what this is about. This is about giving of ourselves with no expectations. This is about uh, complete surrender to something greater than ourselves, which I, I heard you say in a second. You know, a lot of people get hung up on the God idea or the God word for that. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't want to call it God. I don't want to refer to it as a he. Me personally, I had a lot of daddy issues. So like I, for a long time, I called God, she. Like for okay. me, God is a she. But, you know, call it mother nature, whatever. Like straight, yeah. but, but so your, your the topic today is, is, is about service. And, and I, I truly, what I want to do is just hear from you for another, you know, five minutes about why you, why service is such a big deal for you in the recovery space and just in the world as, as a, as a man of recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. And I talk a lot with my, my, my close friends from 2010 that's restarted his, his date, uh, and he wants to know, how do you get so juiced for this stuff? How are you so excited? And it's because of the people I've been around. It's my sponsor immediately was doing service, talking about it. And believe me, the first GSR report I heard, which is a general service rep for a 12-step group, I heard it and thought, someone needs to stop that person. That is not a good share. What the service has enabled me to do, and my first service commitment was calling my sponsor daily that, that was a tough mm -hmm. call in my head what do i talk about this and that and every time i did it i felt good i did what i said i was going to do first meeting commitment coffee well i don't want to mm -hmm. make coffee i drink coffee i'll just bring a coffee uh right. get there an hour early stay a little half hour late and ingratiated myself into the meeting i felt a part of i had a purpose i had a reason and from a coffee brewer to a trustee we're hoping to, to get a connection from this person that's dying of this disease like i was and, and get someone that's had a spiritual awakening that, is, that I'm having, and the two can meet and, the, and their hearts can grow and a new life is born. I recall going through my, my character defects and stuff. You know, it's all mm -hmm. a secret. I'm writing it down. I'm afraid that I will die alone, unloved, unwanted, uncared for, not making any difference. This is my truth. This is who I am. I'm ashamed to admit it. It's like the color brown in my hair. It's just who I am. And my sponsor says, we're going to work on that. God's going to work on that. It's not an overnight thing. It's okay. I can laugh at that now. And I'm not saying that it's funny, but I know that it's a lie. So these lies we tell ourselves when I can't look you in the face and I'm afraid to talk to you. I, I want to help that person find what we've had. And then, then the next person, so on. The, one of the bitchiness things is to be in a panel and see someone come to a meeting uh, from that panel or sponsor someone and this and that. <laughs> Service. I'm reminded I'm still a crackhead. I'm a newcomer that stuck around. And, and I, I've got a service resume. I won't bother listing that here. I, guess I, 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 I like to help and be of service. And what service has done for me is keeps me, especially when I keep changing committees and stuff like that, is ask for help. How do we do this? What am I supposed to do? What can we do? And the, the commitment I rotated out going, oh, here's what they showed me. Here's my humble view of it. And I'm learning to allow each person to have their turn at that. And, and believe me, early on, early sobriety, I'm like, oh, no, you're holding it wrong. You, you got to step in, this and that. It's their <laughs> turn at bat. <laughs> it's their turn at bat. If they want to go down without swinging, that's up to them. But right. I had my turn, and people were very patient with me, and they showed me things. And I, I stepped up and, and did what I was supposed to. So a thing I like to say is that the same enthusiasm I used to get from a hit of crack like service mm -hmm. is a hit of crack. And I was telling that to Pat O one time we were doing uh, uh, posters. God, this stuff's great, you guys. Usually we just did with two people. There's 15. This is like smoky crack. And, mm. and Pat says, this is good, but it's not the same thing as crack. And he's absolutely right. 
because crack is artificial. It's not real. And I'm not going to be knocking at your door at three in the morning going, cut some more posters. But what it is good, what it is good is something I like doing, something that sparks it in me. Uh, the first hitter crack I took, oh, what's this about? Second hitter crack I took, oh my God. So I want, I want to be excited about life and service and stuff like that. So that's why service is important to me. You keep asking for help. And you got to remind yourself that you're still a crackhead. I know the, one of the service commitments that I bowed out of, mm-hmm. I was wanting just to get the position. And I'd gone through the resume, the process, and was finally at a certain level. I go, I just want it to, to, so I can have it. That's not the reason you have it. I want the position to serve. And so every mm-hmm. other position I have now, I, I want to serve. That will come later. That will come later. But so I'm just another crackhead staying sober, uh, enjoying life. That's where service is. And uh, my little pitch on service, service is, is the gateway to gratitude. It's a platform mm-hmm. to growth and a passageway to freedom. I'm free mm-hmm. today. So. Absolutely awesome. I mean, this is amazing. It, what a privilege it was to have you on the show today. You're oh, a thank good, you, Paj. Good thank man. You, I, I, we, we've known each other for a few years. I've seen you at, uh, yes. at certain meetings, certain, uh, certain places where circles co- cocaine, yeah, cocaine users usually congregate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we both have uh, admired each other's recovery. So Very I just much. thought you know, like about a month and a half ago or something like that, when I was talking to you, said, come on the podcast. Let's have you on there, man. Great and opportunity. Yeah. Great opportunity. Well, to any and all who tuned on in, uh, hope that you enjoyed. And then this will be uh, available on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you could support the YouTube channel, it's uh, Pej, the, the drug interventionist. You can find me on there. All of our episodes of Pej's Recovery Corner on there, as well as many other uh, videos that we've done, both my TikTok videos and other videos of, uh, about raising awareness about drug addiction, alcoholism, mental health, and uh and uh, we look forward to seeing you all soon again. I'll be coming back with another guest probably next Tuesday. I'm going to take a break this weekend. But, uh, Chris, again, thank you for coming to thank the corner. You. I love you very much. And namaste. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much. I enjoy the corner. I'll be watching. Listen to learn. Thank you, sir. God bless. Awesome. You're the best. Bye. Bye.